Hi, this is Dr. Michelle Woolhouse. Join us on FX Medicine next week, where we'll be talking to Dr. Lily Thomas about the pathogenesis and treatment options for fibromyalgia. Subscribe to us on your favourite podcast app and follow us on social media to make sure you never miss an episode. And welcome to FX Medicine, where we bring you the latest in evidence-based integrative, functional and complementary medicine. I'm Dr. Michelle Woolhouse. The world of diet and gut health is ever-changing, full of opinion, research, emotion, passion, and with the scientific landscape evolving by the day. Naturopaths and traditional medicine practitioners have espoused the connection between gut health and its impact on whole body health for centuries. But despite an extensive amount of scientific research that backs up this connection, Western medicine is lagging in getting up to speed, incorporating this into practice and training for new doctors. But there are some who've been championing the role of food and nutrition in not only gut health, but in prevention of disease and part of whole person care. Today's guest, Dr. Pran Yoganathan, is one of those rare doctors. He's a gastroenterologist who uses food and lifestyle changes to optimise his patients' gastrointestinal and metabolic health and empowers them to embark on a journey of self-healing. Welcome to FX Medicine, Dr. Pran. Thank you, Michelle. I appreciate you having me on. Uh, it'll, be, uh, it'll be a pleasure to catch up on these topics. So one of the interesting aspects of your work is your open-mindedness and willingness to explore new and ancient ways really to support people's long-term health and today we're going to focus on discussing a very old nutritional concept one that's baffled modern day nutritionists and that is the carnivore diet so dr pran how did you become interested in this and what do you exactly mean by the carnivore diet um thanks michelle look um i I think there's a lot of uh, wisdom in in looking at our evolutionary past i think you've always got to view biology through an evolutionary lens and, and something as ancient as, as nutrition. I mean, our species is three and a half to four million years old. So we've certainly adapted to consume nutrients or food in a, in a specific way. So I started looking at it more from a gastrointestinal perspective, like what, you know, almost like reverse engineering the gut. What is our gastrointestinal tract uh, supposed to do? And, and it really opened up my eyes in terms of what we're supposed to eat and how we are supposed to consume food. Um, which leads us to the paradox or the dichotomy, which is that uh, the, the, some of the foods that are evolutionary um, from an evolutionary perspective that we're best adapted to are some of the foods that are that are demonized by mm. the nutritional sector and in fact the healthcare sector and uh, you know and and I think this is where I have to stand at a crossroads and make my decision as to how do we kind of um, progress from there and 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 the concept that I've really embraced is individuality, which is that we've got to tailor diets um, according to the preference of the person and what best suits the person at what stage of life they're at, the activity levels, um, you know, their ethical beliefs, all this sort of stuff, mm. um, ra- rather than just preach a pyramid, uh, which clearly for the last 40 years hasn't hasn't really worked because we're, we're, we're seeing disease, chronic disease at, at, at levels that are really unprecedented. So when you oh, ask me the question of, well, what, what does a carnivore diet mean? I've never um, 
uh, I've never kind of preached the idea of eating exclusively meat. Um, I think I think some balance is um, is required, but at the same time, I um, I'm, I'm irritated by the fact that meat's uh, gotten such a bad name in the healthcare and nutritional sector, and in particular red meat. And uh, mm. these are some of the myths that that I'm hoping to dispel. But in fact, yeah. a whole food um, red meat based diet can be one that is very nutritious. Uh, but also very, very beneficial, um, especially in the states of disease, uh, which is mm. where most um, adult Australians find themselves. One of the things that I look at, at modern medicine, I mean, we we have so much technical technological advances, you know, like the MRI machines are incredible and, you know, some of our testing, but yet, you know, we're really seeing disease at astronomical levels, you know, obesity, type 2 diabetes, heart disease, cancer. It's just extraordinary what we're putting up with. But one of the things I was reading over the weekend in preparation for this, and it's really opened my mind, and I know that you are are really strong on this evolutionary nutrition, but I was reading an article written by uh, an Inuit woman from northwestern Alaska and just reading about, you know, that particular diet, which has always been quite baffling for me. You know, how did these people survive, you know, with virtually no plant and vegetables at all you know for a couple of months of the year they might have had some things kind of growing through the ice and um, it was associated with longevity and and good health and so I think that though looking at those diets can give us such inspiration like we we think about um, food per se but there's really no essential food there's only really essential nutrients would you Absolutely agree with right. that? Absolutely right. That's exactly right. And uh, you've hit the nail on the head there, uh, Michelle. We've overcomplicated diet and uh, it's it's uh, especially in the medical sector and I think also in the nutritional sector, we've overcomplicated really. It's about eating to achieve nutrients and maximizing nutrient density to optimize metabolic health. That's what fundamentally all of this is about and the Inuits mm. were well known for this there's other other tribes all around the world the Maasai of the African uh, the African plains they're they're um they're the uh, the cow herders that survive purely on animal sourced foods or largely on animal sourced foods and they they you know enjoy good health I think um you know human species is very adaptable we just adapt to the environment that we're in and mm. for most part of the northern European history where these um, where these people existed in in, in very similar uh, environments to Alaska actually with with a very cold environment you know, faced by the frozen tundra, there was very little in the way of plant-based food. And we've got to remember like agrarian societies or agricultural societies are really only 10 to 12,000 years old. Our species mm. is 4.5, uh, you know, 3.5 to 4 million years old. So the question is like, what were we consuming? What's our gut kind of really adapted to? I think we've overcomplicated. You, you talk to most doctors, medical doctors, or even nutritionists, you, you say, what's an ideal diet? A lot of them will tell you it's a high fiber diet, which really to me lacks any sort of insight, um, you know, not saying the fiber is not beneficial. We can touch on that later, but uh, a fiber is not a nutrient. It's not something mm. that human beings can utilize. It's it's food for the microbiome or the gut bacteria. Um, they ferment the fiber if it's soluble and they produce a beneficial uh, component called short-chain fatty acid, which is a ketone, mm. which our body can utilize. But the physiological limit to what the gut or the human body can utilize in terms of fiber is actually very, very limited. So it, it leads me to the conclusion, you know, that, 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 you know, doctors and these so-called nutritional gurus 
uh, in particular the cardiologists who kind of really espouse or preach a low-fat, low-meat diet, have very little idea what they're talking about. That's really interesting, I think. You know, the, like I like looking at these kind of extremes. I mean, the Eskimo or Inuit diet is is a diet of extreme compared to what we're doing now. So it obviously wasn't extreme. I mean, they lived in an extreme environment, let's face it. But, um, you know, it, it, it can teach us so much to actually drill down and kind of look at what humans humans need. So what is going on with the gut biome on a kind of predominantly meat-based diet? Like what what's happening with the gut biome in that regard? Yeah, um, I, I think we get too nuanced about the gut microbiome. I mean, I can tell you right now, Michelle, without – without any debate, uh, I don't think there can be any debate on this, that fundamentally what's stuffing our human microbiome or the gut microbiome is ultra-processed food, and mm. that's what's doing it. And the vast majority of ultra-processed food is plant-based calories, um, you know, uh, whether that comes from sugar or, you know, refined carbohydrates such as breads and pasta, these are, these are plant-based foods. And, of course, refined meat kind of falls into that category, but there's actually vast majority of refined food is plant-based. And so mm. if you look at it from that context, it becomes relatively simple. Um, in terms of the gut microbiome, the gut microbiome, the, the vast population of your uh, gastrointestinal microbiome exists in the hindgut, which is the colon. And mm. what makes it to the colon is protein that's not absorbed um, and carbohydrates that are not absorbed, uh, fat as well, I suppose, if you've got issues with fat malabsorption or you're overeating fat. Very mm. difficult to malabsorb protein unless there is pathology or concurrent drug use, um, which yeah. might be impairing it. Um, so really, when you think about it, the vast majority of things that end up in the colon are undigested carbohydrates, which can be the FODMAP-type um, carbohydrates, yeah. you know, the fructans and the lactose and the fructose and et cetera, or fiber, which, as I pointed out before, is a carbohydrate that humans cannot utilize um, uh, per se, their gut microbiome does. So um, really, when you think about it, um, the, the, the microbiome kind of um, exists on those, those, those things. So People have become obsessed with feeding the gut and the gut microbiome. Really, we've got to learn to feed ourselves. We've got a we've got a population <laughs> of people that are under muscled, under muscled. Yeah. They, they've they've got terrible skeletal health uh, with with poor bones, and and we've got kids with under muscling. Like we we are not even feeding ourselves. So I think we've got to learn to feed the human body before we worry about the microbiome. I think uh, mm. that, that that's the basic principles of the diet we kind of espouse that really we, we need to be um, focusing on the priorities. So I, over the weekend too, I was reading this recent 2021 study, which was published on behalf of the American Society of Nutrition. And it was a it was an observational survey, you know. So they surveyed 2,029 people and they didn't have a control group and, you know, they're obviously willing participants within um, this and they'd been, they had to have been on a carnivore diet for greater than six months and over the age of 18. So with that, they specifically were eating less than 10% vegetables um, more than monthly. But what I thought was really staggering about this observation is 50% of the participants that were surveyed had started the diet because of allergy or autoimmunity. And they were finding quite staggering benefits from going on this purely meat-based diet. So in your mind, what do you think is going on for people who feel better 
when removing plant-based foods? Just to just to clarify, okay, let, let's take a person that's carrying significant amounts of body fat and we yep. put them on a diet that is pure water, some minerals with no calories in. Um, I think uh, there, there was um, an Italian gentleman, uh, Angus Barberi, um, I can't remember, it, it might have been in the 40s, but he did a 365-day um, fast. He was morbidly obese. Um, at the end of it, he was perfectly healthy, much healthier when he started the journey. And uh, additionally, he was he had, he'd, he'd lost a lot of his fat, additionally lost muscle as well, which is not ideal. So the whole point is, if you're consuming a diet that is ultra-processed, and let's be honest, the vast majority of Australians are, um, the vast majority of the calories come from ultra-processed food. Going on an elimination diet such as that is 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 is, is super beneficial because you're just removing rubbish. Now <laughs> you could you, you could do the same. You could do the same with with fasting, um, although I don't advocate that at all. Um, or you could do the same with with um, say a, a diet that is full of monotony. Say with something like broccoli or potatoes, you would still lose weight. You would still see the same benefits that these people on the carnivore diet are seeing. However. Um, is it sustainable long-term? The answer is no. One, due to palatability factors. And, and secondly, a plant-based mono-monotonous uh, diet is unlikely to fulfill all your essential amino acid needs. Mm. And, um, and, and additionally, you won't get the fats that go along with, with these meats. Uh, and we know fat is an essential macronutrient. It also can be very nutrient-dense depending on how the animal was raised and so forth. Uh, in particular, the omegas, uh, omega fats are, are essential fats. So um, this is the thing with this meat-based diet. They're fundamentally providing their body with elimination, number one, and number mm. two, all the essential amino acids because let's be honest, red meat pretty much contains all the essential uh, elements uh, required for the building blocks of life, which is which is protein, and mm. it's an animal source protein, so it's easily absorbed, broken down, and assimilated. So it really isn't that surprising that a monotonous diet such as this achieves it. Uh, you could, uh, as I said, just to repeat and reiterate the point, you could achieve the same with a diet that is just pure uh, white potatoes and and water and 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 salt. You you would still get the benefits in terms of improvement in metabolic health, but you can't sustain that. You can't sustain it. You'll you'll very quickly run into some sort of um, protein or energy-based um, um, deficiency, uh, depending on how much body fat you carry. Whereas the red meat diet, it it, it provides satiety and all the essentials for life, really. So you're basically stripping it down to what are the essentials for survival. And it was we well know carbohydrate um, is not an essential macronutrient. Your yeah, body can right. make it out of protein. Um, I think there are benefits to consuming certain carbohydrates and certain soluble fibers. Uh, but you know that that's a that's a different story. So um, that 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 is my summary of that. Yeah. I mean, I know that you you really talk about protein a lot, and I thought what was really interesting about reading about the Inuit diet over the weekend was that they would actually, even even though towards the end of those deepest, darkest winters, and they saw maybe a, a moose or a caribou kind of on the on the ice, but the moose and the caribou that they were seeing were like so deficient in fat. You know, they were just sort of so sinewy and so unwell because of the long winter that the traditional people wouldn't eat these meats because they were so low in fat that if they ate protein only with no fat, they would actually get sick. 
And so there was like, they called it the protein ceiling. And I know you talk so much about the importance of protein from a satiety and also amino acid building block uh, level, but the addition of essential fats seems to be the kind of the, the magic of having both a really good level of fat alongside the protein intake. Yeah, absolutely. It, 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 it's primarily um, uh, just just an energy deficiency. So, I mean, protein, as we know, has a really high thermic effect. So, mm. you know, to consume protein, you need energy to break it down. Yeah. Um, so, you you know, this is why a lot of people lose weight on a high-protein diet. Not only is it satiety-related factors, but also the thermic, the dietary um, uh, thermic effect, which is that um, by consuming protein, you require energy to actually break it down. So you actually yeah. consume energy. I kind of think that that is missing out in the the general knowledge area of like how much you actually require energy to break down protein. So from a weight loss perspective, there's still that controversy of like, you know, should we on low carbohydrates? Is that okay? Is that got evidence based? But if you're stripping it back to actually understanding how nutrition works, that's actually a really good thing to, to understand the thermic basis of eating a high protein diet. Or adequate yeah, protein diet. Correct. Yeah, exactly right. But you can imagine like these people consuming these lean proteins with very little body fat. Um, and and let's be let's be honest here, Michelle. Like someone consuming lean protein with in the absence of fat um, or carbohydrate with a very high body fat percentage is not going to run into those same issues with yeah, protein. Yeah, that's right. That's <laughs> you, true. You know, so yeah, they can have got some. They've got <laughs> some right. resources to use up. <laughs> hundred percent, hundred percent. So we had these really lean people consuming lean protein, and and you're going to very run quickly run into protein um, uh, protein toxicity in that yeah. kind of sort of context. So um, that's very unlikely to happen in the modern world. Um, mm. And in fact, you know, I, I'd, I'd say for people carrying a lot of body fat, um, you know, leaner proteins are probably the way to go. Um, yeah. you know, so, um, I think there's no doubt there are, there are many nuances when it comes to these higher protein diets. Mm. I think what I'm hearing from you, Pran, is that it's just so important to look at the person in front of you. If you've got a person in front of you that, yeah, they might have, you know, irritable bowel syndrome, but they are actually carrying, you know, 30, 40 kilos extra, you know, to look at their diet and shape it to what is actually going on in their metabolism right now and that obviously changes as time goes by you know if they start to lose 10 or 15 kilos then you know you start to kind of adapt as things go by is, is that kind of how your how you shape your dietary um i guess nuances yeah absolutely and, and just to clarify michelle i work i don't specifically give out dietary advice i mean i, I understand it but I, I, I am very uh, cognizant of the fact that we've got a, a regulatory body that sits above me, which is APRA, uh, that could very quickly, um, uh, you know, create issues for us, which is, uh, this is the ridiculous aspect of it all, that doctors aren't, we, we, we're not supposed to give dietary advice. Um, this, is, this is how ridiculous the whole situation is. So, Even I, as a gastroenterologist? Is that uh, like- I, th- I think there are nuances. I think gastroenterologists can, and I, I believe endocrinologists can as well. 
Um, but I've really surrounded myself with a with a fantastic team of dietitians uh, mm. led by Jessica Turton and a team at Ellipse Health that that work concurrently with my own service. And so we we individualise um, um, uh, these diets for people. And um, you know we're the only species that kind of has to have a dietary guidelines. We 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 don't know what to eat now because we're, so, <laughs> we're, we're we're really we're confused. Yeah. Oh, we're really confused, and we're surrounded by rubbish. And 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 we, our concepts uh, are very basic. It's introducing whole foods back uh, to the person, mm. and um, just making sure that they're meeting their nutrient uh, needs. And some some people need supplementation. You know, like if we've chosen, if people have chosen a vegetarian, a vegan lifestyle, like we don't judge that. We yeah. we simply help them. Um, to make sure that they're meeting all their nutritional needs. It's more difficult to do so because animal-based foods are so powerful in mm. their nutrient uh, adequacy that that um, eliminating them completely makes things difficult. But we we personalize it for people. And as like a lot of people don't eat meat simply because, and I see this in, in practice in particular with female patients, there's huge levels of empathy that go along with it. Like they don't want to consume things that have, Kind of had to die for to to um, to help them along, and and some of them know that it it adversely impacts their health, um, yeah. but they choose not to do it. And you can't judge people like that. I mean, it, it, these sort of people, um, I admire them, um, but at the same time, as a doctor, I, I've got to find a way to kind of help them to make sure that they don't run into nutritional issues. So yeah. we'll often see them with B12 deficiencies, iron deficiencies, sarcopenia, a lot of gut-based issues, and it's like, well, what can we do to help them? And um, our team of dietitians do so um, very well. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I'm going to go back to um, to that traditional diet in that way, because I mean, I think we can learn so much about that. But you know, food diversity is one thing that I've always speak about. Is um, and it was interesting listening to their diet, which was so diverse, much more diverse than I kind of thought. And I think diversity of different types of animal products, but also they were eating things like seal brain and fermented whale and caribou livers, and you know, it was their use of kind of the organ meats as well that helped them to get their nutrition and I think also in many ways we don't tend to focus on those really super nutrient-dense foods like livers and kidneys and brains etc from various different animals in which to get our things like vitamin A, vitamin K, vitamin D even you know so they were getting all of their nutrients from this diet and they were even because they were eating frozen or raw foods they're also getting small amounts of vitamin C, which was enough to kind of stave off scurvy. But obviously, you know, seal brains and caribou livers are not found in the local butchers. For somebody, you know, looking towards really increasing the quality of animal products within their diet, how do you go about kind of advising them how to get that kind of diversity and that kind of um, sources that they can get things like vitamin A and vitamin K from, for example? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I think um, a lot of these cultures that have survived on 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 mainly animal-based foods are kind of eaten the whole whole animal, um, mm. you know. And I think it is important to get that that eaten. I think if you're going to do a predominantly meat-based diet, we don't advocate that by any stretch of the imagination. We're more about that meat is important part of the diet. But if if one chooses to consume liver to 
to get some vitamin C or, or vitamin D and, and all the other vitamins that go with it, including vitamin A and so much more. Liver is some of the most nutrient-dense foods you can get. Um, well, that's fantastic. I think, I think you know, even up until 40, 50 years ago in, in Europe, liver was a massive, um, massively uh, valued uh, food, food stuff um, that, that can be chicken or, or uh, ruminant uh, liver. So uh, I, I think a person getting a combination of muscle meat um, with the fats that accompany it and liver um, is getting pretty much pretty much all the requirements f- for life. Um, mm. Although the vitamin C in the liver can be um, can be destroyed by excessive heat, like if you overcook it. So yeah. um, I, I think these cultures often would eat the liver raw um, when the, as soon as the animal was killed, because it tends to spoil or oxidize very quickly and 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 makes it. Um, not all that palatable. Um, so there's there's a lot of wisdom to the ancient kind of traditions that were utilised. Very yeah. difficult to do that in this modern world, of course. Like <laughs> totally. We're not butcher, butchering our own animals. Yeah, and we don't really um, want to ferment whale um, flippers, I think they were eating. I mean, respectfully, yeah. I'm, I'm sure, but, um, yeah, tricky. <laughs> yeah, tricky. Uh, that's it. That's exactly. Yeah. You might get in, run into trouble with the law, I think, if you were. Uh, <laughs> I know. <laughs> Yeah, and um, and so, um, that yeah. empathy would go next level. But I mean, I want to also hone in on the fact that not all fats are made equal. You know, often sometimes when we're talking about uh, our meat supply, let's take for example beef, we've often mm. got an issue with we've got grain-fed uh, beef, and so grain-fed beef have got a different level of omega three to omega six ratios that can be problematic as well. I know you're really passionate about, you know, um, there's a big difference between, say, domesticated farmed meats compared to, say, wild meats. Talk to us about fats and how important they are in terms of overall health, you know, with regards to, you know, the I guess the animal husbandry of the, of the animal before it um, yeah, absolutely. I, I don't think grain is particularly natural for animals to consume in large amounts, and, and the vast majority of um, Australian beef is now grain supplemented. Do you know what I mean? And that's the, there's many reasons for that. That's um, you know um, part of the reason is it, it makes the animal more pal- palatable when it, when it's got the the marbling and the fat through it. So that's a desired trait. But I don't think it's particularly healthy for the animal. I think the nutrient value drops. There's been plenty mm. of studies to suggest this. And the omega-6 content increase in the omega-3 drops. Omega-6, as we know, is... Um, you know, I think society's got an issue with too much omega six fats yeah. uh, versus omega three, not enough omega three, and um, and 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 in addition, it drops the protein content because the animal's muscle becomes more marbled with with fat. And as we've spoken about before, it's the priority really has to be has to be protein. And um, the beauty with fat and protein, in particular when you're consuming with animal-based foods, they tend to provide a high level of satiety. I think fat in its unrefined form uh, tends to provide a high level of satiety, whereas in a lot of these low-carbohydrate diets, people overconsume things like butter and and so forth, where, where these are, I would consider them refined fats, not in their mm. natural matrix. So these fats are very, very easy to overconsume, and so you end mm. up with a surplus of calories, whereas I, I've, it's very difficult to overconsume 
marbled meat or, or lamb chops, for instance, like that combination of protein and fat tends to provide a high level of satiety, mm. which must have some sort of um, neurohormonal basis in the gut, you know, with leptin and ghrelin and these sort of mediators, you know. That's really interesting. I wanted to kind of, I mean, it leads me into my next kind of question about the omnivore diet, which I, I know that I think you're much more, um, I guess, akin to. So, but one of the things about in, but reading about these kind of carnivore diets and also the research that was done, <clears throat> only observational research, but before insulin was invented, people with type 1 diabetes were often put on an ultra-low or no-carbohydrate diet and were just fed protein and fat. And there were some reports back in the 1700s that that was actually an effective treatment modality, not not advocating that now obviously, but um, because we have insulin to, to deal with things better. But what struck me when I was looking at that is that is it this very low or no-carbohydrate diet part of that reversal of that metabolic impact that we're seeing in something like a metabolic syndrome, you know, or when we combine kind of the omnivore diet and plants, is that upsetting that ability to kind of reverse that metabolic dysfunction, for example? Um, I don't think so. I think that diet uh, which you were looking at, I can't remember the um, the physician that advocated it, but we were looking at I think I've got his name di- here. Oh, um, have you? Um we were looking at type one <laughs> diabetics, do you know what I mean? And and so that was beta islet cell failure and, and so yeah. too little insulin. So it was replacement. Whereas now with type two diabetes being the predominant form of metabolic dysfunction, we've got an excess of insulin. You don't even have to be diabetic, uh, type two diabetic to have an excess of insulin like uh, you know, I'd say the vast majority of young adults walking around the world now have hyperinsulinemia and just don't know it um, without the type 2 manifestations as yet. You just have to measure it, although we don't do fasting insulin, right? Like because that's not advocated by the Australian Diabetic Guidelines, which is a travesty. So uh, most of this stuff we don't know about, but mm. but this is the reality of the situation. Like we're dealing with too much insulin, too much energy, fundamentally energy toxicity. So really rather than making it specifically about the macronutrient, what it is, is we need to get people into an energy deficit. Um, And I don't like using energy deficit because it implies the calorie in, calorie out model, but calories are still king. So the question is, how do we bring insulin down? Well, we've got to reduce calorie intake. Okay, we can do that either through willpower. You could put someone on an 800 calorie diet, which is just macaronis and potatoes, and they'll lose weight. But they'll be miserable. They'll be hungry because these things don't have very high satiety. Now, the key is to do this through foods that have a very high thermic effect, uh, which can be the fibrous greens or my favorite um, approach to it would be nutrient-dense meats. That They tend to have very, very high uh, thermic effects and also very, very high satiety levels. So yeah. we can push people into a caloric deficit using this means. Now, additionally, these sort of high-protein diets generally tend to promote good muscle health, good hormonal function. So hopefully it kind of motivates the people to get out there and exercise as well. So you'll find mm. that people that, that do these sort of diets often – at the same time, will exercise any sort of diets. You know, they tend to exercise, but 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 try exercising on a on a on a calorie restricted, low protein diet. You, you'd feel absolutely shocking. It's not sustainable. Yeah. Um, and uh, these are the sort of people on these type diets that you see in the cardio section of the uh, of the gym, just really struggling. And 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 
uh, fundamentally just having blowouts on the weekend where because they're starving, they, they're just driven to eat and they overeat yeah. and they feel guilty and the cycle begins again. Whereas getting into a diet that is higher in protein, higher in animal source foods, you're provided with so much satiety, you automatically fall into a caloric de- deficit, the high thermic effect. Additionally, that, that willingness to exercise, the sex hormones work better. So, you know, you get better muscle health, better motivation, hopefully less mm. um, mood-based dysfunction. It, it, um, it really all goes together. Yeah, and also, I mean, you know, just as you were saying, I was thinking we get better liver detoxification as well because you need all your amino acids to make sure that you detoxify your your liver effectively. So you're kind of like almost, you know, you know, making the cog work in that different way, like slowly but surely you're sort of, you know, returning to a state of kind of metabolic health, you know. You can kind of see it in the early days but as the it's even before the weight drops you're starting to kind of reverse those internal cycles. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I agree. Yeah, which is kind of exciting and it would be really great to sort of shape that for, for patients too. Like I'll often sort of say, you know, it's really not about weight loss in that early times. It's all about energy levels. So if you're feeling more energy and you're able to go to the gym or, you know, I know that um, the gyms these days are really, you know, aiming for that, that huge strength um, increase even for, for, for women, you know, <laughs> like um, – mm. The best exercise at the moment is um, deadlifts. You know, it's the new, it's the new everything for everything. Apparently, everyone yes. says. Yes. Um, and you know, rightly so. But you know, that high protein diet helps to build that muscle so that you can then exercise and turn the whole, you know, metabolic dysfunction process around. Absolutely, and I think anyone who says exercise isn't critical is um, really missing the whole uh, picture. And and and. Um, you know, people get so ideological about their diet, but really just find a diet that allows you to exercise, you know, and that's always been my point. Yeah, and these evolutionary, you know, nutrition will see that, you know, the Hunza people from, from Pakistan or, um, you know, they're only eating once or twice a day, A, because they had to hunt for their food. So that's a good, you know, indication that, you know, it'd be great if we actually walked to get our food, not just to the fridge. That could be something we could think about. Um, but, you know, like we, they, they used to be out in nature all the time, you know, exercising up to 14 kilometres a day, walking, hunting. Um, so we really have to bring that into the kind of whole, I guess, um, evolutionary nutrition perspective because they're not just sitting down sedentary like we often, you know, do at our computers and things like that. Yeah, there's no doubt. I mean, we've becoming we've become increasingly sedentary, and that's a huge part of the um, part of the equation there. But um, you know, like before we kind of push people towards exercise, we have to direct them with the right sort of exercise. And I think, you know, brisk walk for 45 minutes, um, whilst it's beneficial, it's unlikely to achieve anything meaningful in terms mm. of falling into that caloric deficit. And additionally, you know, just having a bigger um, a bigger musculature and not being sarcopenic, you're going to you have a higher resting metabolic rate. So anything that allows you to be anabolic and build muscle uh, would be beneficial. And I think nutri- that plays into both nutrition and exercise. I'm, I'm a big fan of weightlifting and in particular increasing the um, the muscle mass for your lower body and big muscles like back and so forth is so beneficial mm. because you're just kind of building your metabolic rate. So you're burning energy in your sleep. 
fundamentally, yeah, you know. And, absolutely. Uh, uh, yeah, so uh, I, I like to see a lot of older individuals that are metabolically unwell um, get into that type of thing. But it's a, it's an uphill challenge because a lot of people yeah. feel intimidated by gym environments and you know often go there and a lot of fit people there working out and you don't want to kind of impose and take the machine. So it's they find it very intimidating and most yeah. people tend to gravitate towards that cardio section where they could just do their own thing on a treadmill and not be disturbed. Yeah. Um, you know, um, so so um, it's about changing perspective and and and, and changing their mindset, and uh, it's a challenge. Yeah, and and knowledge I think really just helps. Like you know, even the fact that they know that they can burn calories when they sleep is pretty pretty seductive for um from you know most female patients anyway. Put it that way. But I wanted to talk to you about like a really damaged gut. You know, so sometimes I'll see patients with Crohn's disease or ulcerative mm. colitis and and often what's happening is they're, you know, they're put on low fibre diets and that tends to to really help them. You know, going back to this kind of, you know, carnivore-looking diet, not saying that we're necessarily espousing it because it's very difficult to go back to a, you know, traditional Inuit uh, diet that they kind of were so diverse and incredible – but what what's happening in things like Crohn's disease and osteocolitis? Is this something that we need to kind of look at? Like why why does low fiber diets help them, and what do we need to look at from a dietary perspective for um, for such a damaged gut, where the gut wall and the gut biome is skew if and what's what's your advice for that? Yeah, um, I think we've got to look at autoimmunity in general, and Crohn's and and ulcerative colitis is just part of that continuum or spectrum. Um, mm. I think autoimmunity arises in the setting of genetic predisposition in the in the um, presence of, of probably a damaged, a damaged gut um, environment or gut lining. I think the internet colloquially calls it leaky gut syndrome. But I think you're, what we're seeing here is introduction of um, things never before seen in, in, in systemic human um, circulation, um, uh, which are now freely circulating or, or, or entering um, the uh, past the gut gut barrier and um, mm. and 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 freely binding tissue, and this can be bacterial toxins, environmental toxins, pesticides, food components, and uh, I think this speaks to this issue of intestinal permeability, which I think is driving a lot of autoimmunity. The question is, what are the factors driving intestinal permeability? Um, it's one of these chicken and the egg uh, type arguments, and and I, I think. I think that's a complicated uh, question. I think um, the lack of good uh, mucosal health drives it. And um, some of the factors contributing to it are the high volumes of gluten, high volumes of fructose that we're consuming potentially. Mm. And this is theoretical at the moment, but I I think I'm a very – I'm in favour that it's uh, problematic is the high use of glyphosate, uh, which is now found in a lot of our food products. Um, which which I think adversely affects our gut barrier. And, and you just have to look at the trend for autoimmunity in the last 50 years to know that it's just exploded up. So that's not our genetics changing. That's something in very real in our environment that that's occurring. And I think uh, what we're putting in our gut is uh, fundamentally damaging our gut and um, mm. and, then, and then driving up autoimmunity now, ulcerative colitis and Crohn's, that, that's just a version of it. Um, the reason why a lot of people respond to low-fibre diets is because fibre produces so if you've if you've got 
Um, colon, for instance, that's terribly diseased with, with ulcerative colitis. It's been known for years that you put them on low-residue diets, low-fiber diets, because you don't want bulk and stretch in a colon that's damaged. Mm, um, same with diverticular uh, um, yeah, so same with diverticular disease. disease. And, yeah. and then this is what I find funny about diverticular disease. You know, they, it's what's preached is high fiber diet, high fiber diet. Some of the worst diverticular disease I've seen anecdotally, and it's even been reported in the literature, is in people with um, with with really high fiber diets. It's I don't think we're designed for these extremely high fiber loads, you know, mm. because um, I think that provides a problem. And I think a lot of diverticular disease is just overall metabolic health of the colon deteriorating more than anything else. It kind of speaks to systemic health rather than just local health. Yeah. And um, yeah, you know, and 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 so low fiber diets certainly have their role, and some people just don't tolerate fiber well. You don't have to have ulcerative colitis or uh, Crohn's disease. They do not. They've got like a physiological limit to how much fiber they can tolerate. Yeah. So that needs to be kind of slowly introduced, titrated up, kind of um, uh, culture their microbiome, sort of foster it, allow that to proliferate, and then you could kind of have them consuming some soluble fiber. Um, mm. I think insoluble fiber is um, it's less ideal for a lot of people with gut distress and most people feel better off it. Um, so uh, this is, it again, goes back to this individualization of these diets and per- personalization of the diets really, eh? Yeah, no, totally. It really makes sense actually, like just to, I guess, to understand it. I, I, I mean, to be honest, it's been something that's eluded me for a long time, like why, you know, with um, diverticular disease, but now what you've just said makes complete sense, mm. <laughs> um, which is great. So I just wanted to kind of, you know, finish up and really talk to you, you know, from your gastrointestinal uh, hat on, um, you know, because the naturopaths and traditional healers have, have long used this kind of weed, seed and feed, um, those kind of things. Like do you use that kind of philosophy of that weed, seed and feed? And if so, what do you what do you weed, seed and feed with basically? Um, yeah, uh, I'm not I'm not huge on that to be quite honest Michelle like uh, I think my priority has always been if the issue is metabolic health and I think it is for the most most part of it I think we've just got to learn to kind of restore that first just introduce good healthy uh, eating behaviors which um, allow people to kind of eat the building blocks alive Um, most of these um, most of these components that 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 are used you know the phytochemicals and so most of them don't actually leave the lower gut they don't leave mm. the colon. They're, they're mainly utilized by the microbiome, and, and that's fine. They've got their benefits, but I, I think we're talking one percenters there. So we just try and reach the um, – try and hit all the broad uh, categories, which is mm. let's get this person who's chronically under-consuming protein to eat more protein. Yeah. Chronically under-consuming things like iron and B12 and choline to introduce those factors before we start worrying about the uh, – the one percenters, I suppose, um, yeah. and um, I, I think the the the, the Inuit and some of these more ancestral groups have proven that that you really don't need too much of that stuff as a human being to to kind yeah. of survive. So we, we just try and hit the broad topics first. That's great. I mean, I think you know, I think what I love about your approach, Bran, is how simple it is. I was reading in this um, article over the weekend is that literally no one knows what to eat anymore, which is just so 
is just so ridiculous, you know, as a human society with so much science and so much research, we've kind of researched ourselves into confusion <laughs> and, and that's why these evolutionary nutrition kind of concepts just allow us to sort of sit back and just see what our, um, our forefathers and foremothers have done before and really look to them for wisdom that transcends kind of all of this um, bulky research. But it's fascinating to really focus on protein and fats and just coming back to that basic um, nutritional concepts of macro and micronutrients and, and utilising how the patient is individualised, you know, where are they in terms of their metabolic shape and, and how can we build that through exercise and movement um, as well as nutrition. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think um, I, th- I think you hit the nail on the head. Really, it's about the micro and macronutrients. Let's get that right before we worry about the the kind of one percenters and and the human body. Like it, um, it's complicated, but you can v- simplify it as well mm. to an extent. It's it's a machine, and it kind of needs the right fuel to run. And we've just got to get the fuel and the building blocks right, and 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 um, kind of optimize people that way. And you know, just I, I think the simple approach is far more beneficial to the person sitting in front of you which is your client mm. whether as a naturopath or as a, as a as a doctor or as a nutritionist that rather than over complicating the situation um, yeah. and uh, and that's what we aim to do thank you so much pran for taking us through your views on gut health and evolutionary nutrition and just and helping us to kind of simplify these things so we can really incorporate these into our practices i think a lot of practitioners well, now just have a kind of broader viewpoint of what a carnivore diet means and just understanding like how we can learn from our ancestors to to bring health and well-being into a whole new light. So it's, it's really interesting to hear just the way that you think um, is just so helpful to help us kind of think in a much more simplistic but kind of rich and deep way. Um, so thanks again for joining us on FX Medicine today. No problems. An absolute pleasure, Michelle, and uh, happy to do it again sometime. Thanks, everyone, for listening today. And don't forget, you can find all of the show notes, transcripts, and other resources from today's episode on the FX Medicine website. I'm Dr. Michelle Woolhouse. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time. This podcast is intended as healthcare practitioner education only, and it is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The Bioceuticals Clinical Range has been developed exclusively for clinicians. This product range offers complex formulas, higher doses, and specific ingredients for specialised cases. Bioceuticals Clinical infuses quality, credibility, innovation and professionalism into an exclusive product range that meets the needs and demands of private clinicians. Visit bioceuticals.com.au to learn more.